Welcome to Opus Private Clients Wealth Style Podcast. All of the material discussed on our podcasts have specific themes, and that's to move your wealth and lifestyle forward, increase your purpose, and provide you with clarity and confidence. Opus's mantra is always forward. We have found that regardless of one's wealth, moving your lifestyle forward is the number one priority for our clients. On our podcast, we'll share our rich 35 years of experience in designing strategies, share clients' experiences, and introduce resources that have positively impacted our clients. We trust that you will enjoy our direct, transparent, and realistic approach to positively impacting the quality of you and your family's lives. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Opus Private Client Wellstyle Podcast. My name is Yvonne Watanabe. On this episode of the Opus Wellstyle Podcast, we're going to actually flip the script and provide a, a recording of an episode of Dr. Crosby's Standard Deviations Podcast, where I was lucky enough to be a guest. On that episode, we discuss financial planning and finance for immigrant families. I hope you enjoy it. Click the link below to take a listen and also to subscribe to our next episodes of the Opus Private Client Well Style Podcast. Talk soon. Be well. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Uh, I am joined today by Yvonne Watanabe, who is the managing partner at Opus Private Client in New York City. Uh, Yvonne is a graduate of Holy Cross with degrees in political science and Spanish literature. Uh, he was named to El Mundo magazine's Latino 30 Under 30, and as the son of a Venezuelan mother and a Japanese father, he enjoys working with a diverse clientele. Welcome to the show. Hey, I appreciate it, Dr. Crosby. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Good morning to you. So uh, we always like to start off by talking about uh, trying trying to humanize this a little bit. So if you could tell us something about you, very impressive bio, but what's something about you that doesn't show up on the professional bio that might be of interest to the listeners? Sure. Um, I think maybe uh, because my dad is Japanese, maybe not all that surprisingly, um, I practiced martial arts for many years. I'm a first degree black belt. Um, I haven't practiced uh, martial arts in, in quite some time, uh, maybe a little bit more surprisingly to those who know me. Um, I was an avid singer in middle school and high school, so I was an active participant in acapella, glee club, um, and other singing groups, and you know, joined a group in college and then <laughs> quit pretty quickly after I realized how much of a time commitment it was. But uh, back in the day, I was a pretty avid singer. So my father-in-law is a black belt, which uh, kept me very honest early on in the in the dating process. So that's very, <laughs> very good, very cool. Um, so any kind of uh, any kind of acapella group always has to have some punny name. So we're going to need to know the name of your of your singing group there. Oh, what was the name of the singing group? Um, oh, this is embarrassing that I don't remember. God, I, I think the Brookstones. I can't remember. Yeah, so the one uh, the the acapella group where I went to college, I think, was called Voice Voicemail M A L E. Ha ha. So anyway, um, we're gonna need you to start. We're gonna need you to start a new singing group and, and come up with a better name. The, the Brookstones oh. is just too too uh, too easy. Too easy. Yeah, it, it's terrible. I I'm gonna regret that for sure. <laughs> 
Well, longtime listeners of the show will know that I was in a punk band in high school and we were very terrible and I cannot even share the name of my band. So you're, you're doing, (laughs) (laughs) you're doing better, better than I was. Uh, So your, your father is Japanese. Your mother is Venezuelan. So that had to have made for a fascinating uh, growing up. So culturally, how did these two cultures blend and, and, Tell us a little bit about your growing up and the, the intersection of these cultures with the, with the American culture. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, I had an awesome childhood. I think I spent the summers when I was younger going to Venezuela and living with my uh, cousins and family in Caracas. So every summer I'd go there, we'd go to the beach, we'd travel, I'd get to see the city. Um, they taught me Spanish and it was just an, a wonderful upbringing. Um, uh, to get introduced to my to my Venezuelan side, and then my father, you know, when I was younger, uh, sent me to Japanese school on the weekends. So as a good Japanese Asian child growing up, you know, we had to go to school on the weekends. Um, I absolutely hated it, though. I remember being, you know, taking class pictures, and I, it was very obvious that I was the only kid with uh, both parents not being uh, fully Japanese, and so I got a real suntan during the summertime, and. <laughs> If you ever take a look at the pictures of me as a kid, uh, I was really, really dark uh, next to all these other Jap- fully Japanese kids. So it was, it was interesting. Um, but, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I think like any other family, we bonded over food. Right? Arepas were really common in my household. Um, you know, I ate a lot of sushi. My dad was telling me the other day that I think I had my first taste of Tobiko, which is flying fish row at three months old. So it did a really, really good job of making sure that I had both cultures uh, constantly present uh, when I was growing up. Yep. My, uh, my wife is Norwegian and my children, much to my horror, all love cod row. That's like squeezed out of this metal toothpaste looking tube. So we always have a giant tube of cod row in my refrigerator uh so yeah but yeah, very early so bonded bonded over food had these two uh diverse cultures uh from from a very early age um did you feel did, did you feel a, a part of mainstream american culture growing were there were there any messages you got from sort of the broader american culture uh, that conflicted with the messages you were getting inside your home especially as it as it had to do with money you know, I, um, my parents did a really, really good job of, of integrating, you know, American culture in our household. And my, I think it, it's, my mom was really, really curious about other people, other cultures, other, um, other ways of life. You know, she really finds people to be super interesting. And so, you know, she was never shy about, you know, introducing other types of food or other cultures or sharing our cultures with, you know, my, um, my neighbors, for example, and, and letting them know about the foods that we ate, about what's interesting about our cultures, telling them about Venezuela, about what it was like to grow up in Japan. Um, I, I think the only conflicting aspect really was sort of um, sharing of finances, right? And, you know, I, I think in the Venezuelan household, in, in a lot of Latino communities, you know, money's not openly discussed at home. And, you know, how much your parents made is not something that's commonplace to be discussed. Or I think some of my other friends growing up, you know, their parents were super open about, you know, how much money they made or, 
you know, what they were doing with their finances or saving inside of a 401k. So uh, it wasn't something that was discussed at home at all. And, you know, I had to kind of learn that over time through reading and just being curious on my own. Now, you talked about how in, in Latino families that it was common not to talk about uh, money as much. How about, how about on the, in the Japanese front? Was that, was that the same there or was it different there? Um, it was, for me personally, it was different. Um, my dad, you know, didn't really talk a lot about money, didn't talk a lot about finance. He did teach me business when I was a child. So we used to trade baseball cards and we would collect baseball cards and go to baseball card shows. Um, he taught me the value of, of earning money, saving money, understanding, you know, how to make a deal, um, what value, what, you know, what, where to find value in certain items. Um, I definitely got that from my dad for sure. Yeah. How, how old are you now? I'm 33. So I'm about seven years older than you, but we, we both grew up in the absolute height of the baseball card bubble. So I think people, you know, people from about my age to about your age were just in the absolute thick of things and using the Beckett's price guide. And I, I, I often have thought that those early days of trading baseball cards and trying to arbitrage uh, baseball cards, that misspent youth trying to arbitrage baseball cards led me down a path to become a, a finance guy. So it's, it's fascinating. It was super interesting, you know, reflecting back on, on those times, you know, I don't do it often, but or often enough, I would say, but you know, how we would go to the table, set up a table, you know, understand the pricing. And again, my, you know, I was probably 11, 12 years old dealing with, you know, middle-aged men trading uh, baseball cards for cash and, and figuring out, you know, where there were opportunities for me to make money. Um, and I think it really started back then, this passion of understanding values of, of dollar, also, you know, the markets and how to save money how to continuously save and save money. Yeah, no, absolutely. A great, a great early training in, in how to negotiate, how to stick up for yourself and, and how to save. So when we, when we think about Venezuela and Japan in, in particular, these are two countries that in the history have, of finance have had some very sort of interesting and prominent features. Now, Venezuela, of course, has fallen on, on very hard times uh, of late. How, how is your family in Venezuela doing? Do you still keep in contact with, with lots of folks in Venezuela? And what have you learned about markets and about finance from, from observing uh, their experiences there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, my family, uh, thank God, they're all doing as well as can be expected for a population that's really been um, forced to leave their home. And at a time, for those who don't know, Venezuela was one of the richest countries in the world. Um, and now is probably one of the poorest. And a majority of my family has been forced to leave Venezuela and now live all over the world. So, you know, middle-aged and, and above, I mean, you know, my cousins in their 30s, aunts in their 60s and 70s being displaced to start a brand new life at that stage um, in Chile, Ecuador, Spain, um, here in the States, and so it's, it's been an incredible thing to watch um, my family be displaced, but 
uh, I'm super proud of the way they've all rebounded and have been able to start, you know, brand new life uh, for themselves from a planning perspective around finance. You know, I think it just continues to reiterate the power of saving and to have a skill set that that can translate to wherever you'll end up. You know, it, we all take advantage, or I, I think many of us take for granted how strong the U.S. economy has been for those that have grown up here. And, you know, knock on wood, I think, you know, I've, I'll, I'll bet on the U.S. all day long, but I, I'm, I won't take it for granted the ability for the economy to always be strong. You just never know. And so those who have planned accordingly have saved, you know, can, can start anew if they need to. Well, thank goodness your family is doing well. And it's a, it's a testament to their strength that they've been able to, to uproot and make such a success of them, themselves that, that way. But I do, I do think it, it brings something to our awareness. You know, like you said, Venezuela was one of the wealthiest countries in the world, world for a time. And it, shifted so rapidly uh it's shifted so rapidly and i think that even in the u.s and the the, us here in the throes of COVID 19 we're experiencing this this reality that the range of possible outcomes i think is is broader than any of us could have anticipated i mean it's just it's just staggering to think about how quickly the world changed um, and while we're not dealing uh, with anything on, on the level of what Venezuela has dealt with recently, of course, it, it is staggering. I get, you know, early on in the crisis, I would get mail, I would get magazines, I would get mail, I would see a commercial, and it looked like a postcard from Mars, because, you know, the, the world had just changed so dramatically. So I think it is a testament to the need to prepare for a variety of outcomes. There's uh, there's a, a behavioral bias called the Lucretius problem, which is named after a philosopher uh, who who thought that the tallest mountain he had ever seen was the tallest mountain that could ever be. You know, people tend to conf- confuse the the most dramatic thing they've ever seen with the most dramatic thing that that could ever be. And right. I think uh, I think things like COVID nineteen, things like what we've seen in Venezuela, tell us that the the range of possible outcomes is maybe um, better and worse than we might anticipate. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know what's been present for me during this is that we are in control of very little. Yeah, and I, you know the only the only thing we can really do is is focus on the things that we can control. And everything else, you know, you've, you've got to be able to react and adapt as quickly as possible during, um, during things that, you know, are, are totally out of our control. Now, Japan, you know, turning, turning our attention to Japan, Japan is sort of a famous example of a market that can get overheated to the point uh, where it can take decades and decades to recover and in in some cases may not recover after decades and decades. Um, The the real estate bubble, the the market bubble in Japan got so pronounced uh, that it's taken decades and decades to even get back to a a semblance of where it was. What what lessons can we learn from Japan? And I I don't know uh, how strong your ties to Japan still are, if you've you've visited much, if you still have family there. But what are some of the lessons, uh, the financial lessons to be learned from from the Japanese economy? 
Um, you know, I, I recently went back about two years ago. I uh, went to Japan with my family, and they're a resilient country. Uh, I think they are so rooted in culture and so rooted in integrity and the way they operate in efficiency that they continue to harp on that, um, you know, and, and in re- really, really rich in tradition. I think the only thing that concerns me is innovation. You know, are they behind the times in, in innovating and because they're so rooted in tradition? You know, are they going to be able to adapt when the world changes? Are they going to be able to adapt as things move very, very, very quickly? Um, and will tradition hold them back? I'm not really sure uh, what that looks like going forward. But, you know, I, I, it's almost as if one of their largest strengths and one of the, the most wonderful aspects of their culture could be their detriment as well. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Just as a psychologist, one of the things that I took from my brief career as a psychotherapist is that any strength overextended can become a weakness. So you can see how culturally uh, a reliance on tradition, a reliance on, on the past can be a source of real strength and resiliency, but it could also be a source of stagnation. I think you know, in America right now, I think we're, you know, our, our, our freedom loving nature uh, has a ton of upside, uh, but it also has made us a tough, a tough group to wrangle as we try and fight against COVID-19. You've got a lot of people who want to express that freedom in a lot of different ways. So I think any sort of cultural imperative or any sort of cultural tendency uh, overextended can become problematic. And I think that's true on the micro basis too. Interesting to think about each of us in our own professional development and, and how we can, uh, you know, take those strengths, apply them uh, broadly, but not apply apply them so broadly that they become problematic. Absolutely. So in your work uh, at Opus Private Client, you you work primarily with first and second generation families. Uh, For the listeners, what what are some of the specific uh, unique strengths uh, and also the unique concerns of of immigrant families? Yeah, I think uh, it really depends on the communities. Right. I think there are some communities that really play um, wealth as a team sport. So you look at the Asian community or the Jewish community, they do a phenomenal job of inviting their friends and family into their investment ideas. They're really open. You know, if they have a real estate deal, they're inviting their friends and family to participate um, in that um in that real estate deal. And I think as a community, they are really trying to build wealth as a whole. Um, it's a huge strength of, of, of those communities. And I think the Latino community money's kind of been taboo subject in the household, as I mentioned before. So, you know, really trying to change the narrative around that and introduce the concept of, of discussing finances with your friends and family, sharing those ideas. Um, for the most part, I think the common theme around you know, first and second generation families is they're generally open-minded around new concepts. They don't have a lot of preconceived notions of a way around the way that wealth grows. Um, you know, and really it's sort of that double-edged sword again, they care a ton about their families, but what that causes for many immigrant families when, when we do their planning is many of them are stuck in that sandwich generation. So they're trying to raise their children, but because of the way they view family, 
they would never even fathom sending their family to a nursing home, for example. So having to take on the burden and the cost of the care for their elders is something that we have to build into every plan where, you know, some other communities, maybe that's not so relevant. Yeah, I I lived in Southeast Asia for for a couple of years. And the, the thing that I heard again and again from folks in the Philippines uh, with respect to Americans was that uh, they thought it was just monstrous that we had um, retirement homes. Like yeah. it was, it was just unfathomable to them that you would put your elders, you know, outside of your home and have other people take care of them. So understanding if you're, uh, if you're, you know, if you're from the majority culture in America, understanding that different cultures don't view this the same way that, that the majority culture does, is going to be an important part of a financial plan. So something, uh, something that I'm always curious about, when you, when you come up against a cultural norm, like say uh, the, the norm in the Latino community that, that you've talked about, that money is sort of taboo, that you don't talk about money. Uh, but let's say you have a need to talk about money in a, in a planning or an advice con- concept. How do you get past um, something so deeply ingrained in a way that is still respectful of the client's autonomy and still respectful of, of their culture? How, how do you manage that, that crossroads, I guess? One of the first parts of our conversation that we have with most families is just sort of tell me about your understanding of money and, and how was money treated when you were growing up. It gives us a really good sense as to how open people are to discuss their finances. You know, some you'll sit down and they'll be an open book right out the gate and, um, and others are very much guarded. And so my question to them is, what was their experience with money growing up? So I can have some general context to, to, to build around. And I'm very, very open and transparent when I'm having these conversations to say, you know, who are the other people that we need to involve in our planning conversation? Who do you run your ideas by? And, you know, are your parents going to be a concern of ours um, in, a, in an important sort of um, an important part of your overall plan as we build this out? And just asking those questions very directly, I think, open up an entire dialogue. You know, we can only be as good for our clients as the information that they share with us. So asking a lot of open-ended questions is, is critical. Um, because I need all the information. I, I want to know what keeps them up at night. I want to know how they grew up with money. If if they have certain hangups about certain things, if um, their parents are very involved in their decision making, I want to know everything so that I can make sure I tailor the conversation to um, ultimately dr- derive the best plan for that particular household. So you you bring up a great point here. When I was training to be a therapist and was getting training in culturally uh, sensitive approaches. One of the uh, tensions was always, you know, on, on the one hand, having some basic knowledge of, of, of the various cultures with whom I would be working so I could be sensitive to, aware of, and, and um, you know, respectful of those cultures, but then simultaneously understanding uh, that there's more variance, uh, you know, there's, there's a great deal of variance even within cultures, right? There's a great deal of individual variance. I mean, my 
uh, every one of us is sort of an amalgamation of different cultures. Um, and so, you know, my culture and your culture might look very different on, on the surface, but they might have more in common than one would suspect once we, once we get down to it. So I think it's, uh, you know, imperative for financial advisors to understand that you, you need both of these things. You both need a, a general awareness of and respect for the various cultures with whom you'll be working. And you need this inquisitiveness. You need this curiosity to understand how someone's uh, individual experience is going to deviate from those sort of broad cultural norms because there's so much variation um, and, and culture is not a monolith. It's, it's, a, it's balancing those two things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if, if somebody were planning for me, for example, and if they didn't ask those types of questions and, and again, approach it with a curiosity, they wouldn't know, you know, my family, you know, how would you possibly plan for a Japanese father, a Venezuelan mother, you know, a kid that went to a, a really pre- prestigious boarding school and then, you know, a Jesuit liberal arts education, right? <laughs> so, you know, you, you, how would you, if you just read my bio, you wouldn't have any idea how to approach me if you started to to bring in these, you know, internal biases to the conversation. You know, my approach is always just be curious, you know, try to understand as much as you possibly can. Don't go in with any preconceived notions and then adapt from there. Yeah, I I think that's, I think that's fantastic advice. So it's interesting. You've, I've seen you write about how for first generation families, owning property is a great sign of financial success. And, And sometimes doing anything else with money is even seen as foolish. And this is fascinating because it, it mirrors my own experience of my family. Um, I'm from Alabama. My, my family, uh, if you go back, you know, a couple of generations lost money in the bank runs uh, of the great depression. And after that, my, uh, my great grandfather sort of made this promise. He had been this successful middle-class guy and he lost it all in these, in these bank runs. And he said, look, uh, I'm going to make this money back. I'm going to work hard again. And this time I'm buying land. Like I'm not going to put it, you know, anywhere where it can sort of disappear into the ether. And so our family farm is a direct consequence of, of this decision. And it was very much ingrained in me, you know, even growing up in a city and sort of a suburban setting, you know, it's very much ingrained in me as a, as a consequence of, of generations of cultural you know, education that like you want land, like land is the only thing that, that they can't take from you. Right. Uh, and yet, you know, we know as, as market historians that that's not always all that diversified. We know that things like equities on average have, have vastly outperformed things like uh, residential real estate. So how do you, again, <clears throat> maintain a respect for what is a very deeply held cultural tradition while educating people that they need to diversify and there may be better places to put their wealth. Yeah. I think it comes from the American dream, right? Owning a home was a pillar of this American dream for many immigrants. And that really was the, um, the identification of you've made it here in the States as an immigrant. And while I can really appreciate that, and, and I truly do, I think real estate, like any other investment, cannot be the only place where you put your assets. You know, real estate, people enjoy it because it's tangible. They understand it fundamentally. They can see the property, 
right? Where the, the equity markets or stock market is, um, is foreign to them, no pun intended. Um, but really, you know, you can't see it, you can't touch it. You know, somebody else is in charge of those assets and I don't truly understand the way the markets work. So that's very scary to me, but seeing my, my, you know, my apartment building, I can touch it. I can feel it. I think, um, I'm extremely sensitive to that and I really understand that, but like anything else, you don't want to put all your eggs in one particular basket and you want to make sure. And these times are a really great example of that. There are so many landlords out there that have been solely building their wealth in commercial real estate, for example, or residential real estate, but their tenants are out of work and the laws really are protecting of their tenants. And so if they're, you know, their rent rolls aren't coming in, well, then who's responsible for those mortgages? And, you know, are they properly saving in other asset classes to help them, you know, offset those losses? Right. And so you just have to have a general plan around it, but you want to make sure that there's diversification around different asset classes. And I think I've, I've always had an exception around saving all of your money in one particular place and that being the sole place to plan. Yeah. And unfortunately, I do think a lot of people are learning uh, the hard way right now that, that that real estate is, you know, as just as complicated as the next asset class when it comes to periods of, of great performance and periods of, of dramatic underperformance. But I know a lot of people are really uh, a lot of people are really hurting people who have um, built their wealth by being landlords or, you know, through Airbnb and owning second and third homes. Uh, so yeah, a, a dramatic and, and painful lesson in in the power of of diversification, to be sure. So as as we begin to to wrap up, I wanna I wanna talk a, a little bit about the the impact of COVID nineteen on the families you work with, and and you actually have a unique perspective uh, because your your wife is is herself a doctor who is on the front lines of of this battle. Can you can you talk about what you're seeing from New York? And, and how the experience of your clients and, and perhaps even your wife uh, has, has impacted the way that you think about uh, the world of finance and the world of, of planning. Yeah. Um, so just for, the, for those who don't know, my, my wife's the chief anesthesia resident at Columbia uh, Presbyterian Hospital in New York, which is probably one of the um, most impacted hospitals for COVID positive patients in the country. And it's, you know, it's an extremely interesting and scary time for everybody, regardless of their financial situation. You know, even my most wealthy clients are, are directly impacted by seeing their family members test positive, you know, pass away, have to plan a funeral, um, not be able to bury their loved ones, not be able to visit their parents in another country um, and, and seeing the impact for them, you know, abroad, not being able to travel to go see their family. I think regardless of wealth today, everyone is impacted both physically and mentally from what's going on. And, you know, I, I can't help but think about the importance of saving from a financial aspect and, and it's never become more apparent to us that you want to make sure that you have plenty of money saved for the unexpected. And 
that you want to be planning for the unexpected as soon as possible. You know, you know, unfortunately, my wife seeing patients passed away on a very regular basis at the hospital, having to have power of attorney conversations and um, health directive conversations when people didn't have these documents already in place. And those are things that you should not be thinking about as a family when you are worried about the well-being of your loved ones receiving the health care that they need. So, you know, really it reminds me that life is very, very um, random and we, we can't plan for every unexpected event, but we have to do our best to not put things to the side and wait for them to someday magically be the right time to figure it out. Yeah, this is a, it's a great point. It's been incredible to me to see what money can and cannot fix in, you know, in the midst of this. And I mean, there's, there's no denying that money is in, in some ways an, an insulator, you know, those who have uh, savings, those who have food storage and, you know, an adequate rainy day fund are certainly able to uh, ride this out um, better than, than those without those things. But it's also a testament to, again, the randomness of life like you talked about and the fact that there are some things that, you know, money just cannot fix. And those, those are real problems. And there are, there are people I know um, in this world of finance that are, you know, that are billionaires that are writing this out in much the same way that, that the rest of us are. Um, so I, absolutely, uh, please say thank you to, to all of us, to your wife, for the important work that she's doing. Our thoughts and prayers are with, with her and the rest of the people, you know, from the doctors to the scientists to the, to the people who are, uh, you know, bagging groceries to anyone that's on the front lines of this fight, we're just so appreciative. So thank you for, for sharing her experience and, and her perspective. Um, as, as we close out today, Yvonne, uh, we always end with sort of a free association uh, portion where I just ask you a couple of quick questions and you just tell us the first thing that's, that's on your mind. So if you're game, we'll jump in. Sure. Just All one-liners? Right. Just eh, short-ish. I won't okay. hold you. Uh, short-ish, right? Best piece of financial advice you've ever received? Savings rate beats rate of return. There you go. But the more you can control in how much you save is more important than the rate of return that you receive on the month. Yeah, the, you win by controlling the controllables, right? The, your rate of return is not controllable. Your savings rate, uh, much, much easier to control. Um, what, what beliefs or practices around money do you observe among your first, first and second generation immigrant clients that you wish would be incorporated into the broader American money culture? That's a really good question. I think open-mindedness, you know, um, not, not subjecting yourself to old adages that, you know, may have run true decades ago, but today are not so applicable. Um, I, I wish people were just a little bit more open-minded and allowed us to prove out, you know, through economic principles that an old adage may not, uh, may not still ring true. Perfect. And the last one I will be straight up with you is just pure selfishness on my, on my part, because when this whole thing is over, the first place I want to go is Japan. It has been on my list forever. It's been on my son's list. Um, we, we really want to go. Uh, so what is the, the must see place to visit in Japan? 
besides Mount Fuji, um, there is a place called Hakone, which is a lake not too far away from Mount Fuji. And it's an absolutely stunning lake. You take a boat across the lake um, up this mountain, this Hakone Mountain, and you can see Mount Fuji and the lake. It's, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Wonderful. Hakone. Thank yeah. you. I, it, is, it is on my list now, and I will send you a picture when I make it there once we're all, we're all back in airplanes. So, Yvonne, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to learn more about you and your practice, where can they find a little bit more about you? Yeah, they can uh, take a look at our website, uh, www.opus-pc.com. Or they can feel free to, to, to reach me on LinkedIn or, um, or email me directly. Okay. Yvonne Watanabe, thank you, sir. Thank you so much for your time and your insight. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents, including Park Avenue Securities and the Guardian Network. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information participants consider reliable, and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian copyright is a registered trademark of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2020 Guardian Yvonne Watanabe is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, copyright Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Opus Private Client, LLC, is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or Opus Private Client, LLC, and opinions stated are their own. Opus Private Client, LLC, is not registered in any state or with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission as a registered investment advisor. CA Insurance License Number 0H44206 2021-131159 Expiration 12-2023